0: Well, today we have a wonderful opportunity to uh, uh, turn a page, literally in our Bibles, to a new book and in the life of our church, in a sense, uh, to a new study as we open up to the Thessalonian letters, fascinating little uh, letters that are given to us, overlooked by so many people for what they contribute to our overall understanding of the Christian life and of the church. Most people think of the Thessalonian letters simply in terms of eschatology or what they contribute to our understanding of end times. And certainly there are some rich sections where Paul devotes his attention to instructing these young churches in those matters. But if that's all you know about these letters, you have been impoverished in many senses because of everything else that they help us to understand everything they give us in terms of the life of the church. They're fascinating in um, in so many ways. Uh, if for no other reason, they're likeliest, uh, Paul's earliest letters. And these would have been written probably in late 50 A.D. or early 51 A.D. And so they could have very well have been, maybe with the exception of the book of James, could very well have been the first book's that were written, at least the ones that are recorded for us in the uh, New Testament. They would have come not long after the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, which is recorded for us there, at a time when we might say Paul was still relatively early in his own ministry. And while he was early, we can see already so many clearly formed ideas in his mind about ministry, about the church, and even about the gospel. So many things that Paul understood from the very beginning to be essential to the ministry, both his, his own ministry and the ministry of the church. Now compared to letters that he would write six or eight years, even ten years later in his life, we might say there is not as much focus on things like justification, even sanctification as much but more on the doctrine of God, more on the doctrine of Christ, maybe even the doctrine of the Trinity that's embedded in these letters, and certainly on the doctrine of faith and the necessity that it that that, that we need to have in the way we walk in faith before God. And and a lot of rich sections on what we might call the doctrine of scripture, inspiration and the authority of scripture. So it's fascinating for all those reasons and it's fascinating as well just simply reconstructing the historical situation because probably apart from every other New Testament book, we have a more clear understanding uh, of what exactly led to the writing of these letters and so we can see in more clear fashion exactly how Paul is applying his theology to the real situations of life. In which he found himself. We can kind of reconstruct that situation. First, by just simply looking at the letter itself. But then going back to the book of Acts and putting together the total picture of why Paul felt the need to write this letter. And why he believed that he needed to say the things that he said. And so, this morning I wanted to do that for us. I wanted to just sort of, uh, if you will, take the opening verse of the letter as a way of sort of hanging our thoughts on the, the historical background by just looking at those participants or those, those people who are named in the opening of the letter. Paul writes there, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. This just tells us the I don't want to call them the characters, but the, the people involved in this relationship, this ministry relationship, this ministry partnership that, that was so uh, meaningful in the life of the Apostle Paul and so vital that the Lord decided or the Lord, uh, um, we might say, ordained that they be recorded for us in the words of these letters. And so we could just take this little introduction and break it into two essential parts. The first would be what we might call concerned missionaries. This is a letter from missionaries to a church that they had worked with and it was written out of great concern for the church because of the circumstances that were behind the letter. Paul introduces them here. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they were the, the, the three workers, the three men who were involved with Thessalonica. And they all are represented in the letter because they all shared a burden for reasons that we will see as we unfold this morning the passages of Scripture. Paul, of course, was the well known apostle to the Gentiles. He needs little introduction for anyone who is at least uh, halfway familiar with the New Testament. He was formerly a a Jewish persecutor of the church. He had it out to kill Christians. He was zealous in that endeavor. But of course, the Lord captured him on a road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9 tells us, and spoke directly to him from the heavens in a vision and told him that he would be a chosen instrument to reach of all people, the very Gentiles that he hated, the Christians that he was persecuting even. Along with him, Paul names a man Silvanus, who is sometimes called Silas in the Scripture, a man who uh, became one of Paul's close associates, particularly after the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. You may remember that was a point where Paul had a disagreement with his ministry partner, his missionary partner, Barnabas, over a young man, John Mark, who had been with them on their first missionary journey, but had shown some immaturity in the ministry, turned back away from difficult situations, abandoned the group, and Paul didn't want to welcome them back on the team, but Barnabas did, and they couldn't see eye to eye on the issue, and so they separated and went their various ways, and we're told at the end of Acts 15, in fact, if you have your Bibles, turn over there, because we can use this to kind of frame up uh, the book of Thessalonians, Acts chapter 15. And you'll see there at the very end in verse verse 39, it says, There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, who was, by the way, Silvanus, the same person, one uh, being a Jewish form, the other a Greek form of the name. He chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of Of the Lord. Now, Silas has already been introduced to the readers in Acts chapter 15. He was introduced back in verse 22 as an esteemed member of the Jerusalem church. In fact, he was called one of the leading men among the brothers. And because he was a man who sometimes went by a Greek name as well as a Jewish name, we conclude from that he must have been what they call a Hellenistic Jew, someone who was at least raised in a Greek city, a Greek background, uh, probably spoke Greek uh, pretty well. And later on, even in Acts, Luke will mention in in chapter 16 that he was a Roman citizen, which makes it even more likely that he was raised outside of, of Jerusalem. So here he is now serving in the church, probably part of that Pentecost crowd who gathered in Acts 2, came to know Christ, was discipled in the Lord, and raised up and became a leader, perhaps an elder there in the Jerusalem church, a Hellenistic Jew who was esteemed among all the brethren. But he also was a man who gave strong support to the decision by the council of elders and apostles in Jerusalem when they were debating the issue of freedom from the law for the Gentiles. So much so that he was actually chosen to carry a letter to the Gentile churches announcing a decision by the Jerusalem Council to to all of the Gentile churches that they would not be uh, given or it would not be expected of them that they would have to follow Jewish customs, Jewish laws in order to participate together with the Christian church. The council had simply asked them. You may remember, um, back in verse twenty-seven, we've sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. That it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements: that you abstain from what has been sacrificed from or, or sacrificed to idols. So they stay away from this. Meat, essentially, that's been sacrificed to idols, and, and they go on to list a certain number of things that are associated with idolatry, including blood, and from things which have been strangled, and from sexual immorality. All of those things, if you know your background in the New Testament, all of those things had particular associations with, with idolatrous temple worship. And so they were to abstain, basically, from anything that would, that would seem to inadvertently endorse These idolatrous practices. And so Silas or Silvanus is dispatched with a man named Judas to carry this message, particularly to the churches of Antioch and to the churches of Galatia or southern uh, Turkey. Having been a Hellenistic Jew, he would have had sort of a more natural connection with these Gentile Christians. and, And as I said, probably was already sympathetic to the message of their Christian liberty. Plus, there is in Acts 15.32, this note that Silas was actually a New Testament prophet. It says, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So they would bring this letter from the Jerusalem church. They would read the letter. They would give the instruction from the Jerusalem church and from the apostles And yet in these days, when the churches were being founded, they had no New Testament scripture to turn to. They had no uh, New Testament Bible they could open up. And so the the Lord provided in those early days prophets for the church. Men who could speak with inspired words, words of instruction and words of encouragement to the life of the body. Which is exactly what Silas did. He gave them the letter. He read to them the letter under the authority of the apostles. And then as needed, he would speak to situations in the church. And so he was a, obviously a gifted man. A man who was being used by the Lord. And it was no surprise then that Paul would have formed a bond with this guy. Because he traveled along with he and Judas with this letter back to the churches as it was being read. And so when it comes time for Paul to choose a co-worker, it would only make sense that he would choose Silas or Silvanus to be the one who replaces, if you will, Barnabas on their their team. Silas joins him for the second missionary journey and he was with him in Acts 16 all the way through the beginning of Acts 18 through the ministry at Corinth at which point he... He is uh, no longer in the record, at least, of the book of Acts, probably having been left behind in Corinth to oversee the church there or possibly even sent back to uh, the beloved church in Philippi where he had done some dispatch work earlier. But, But he joins Paul for this season, this important season, when he would be ministering to the Thessalonian church. And then, of course, right there in Acts 16, we immediately are introduced to the third member of Paul's missionary team to Thessalonica. Acts 16.1 tells us a story of Timothy. Luke writes there, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went out on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So the Lord was blessing this work and... Paul, in the midst of the work of the ministry, comes and finds a native son, Timothy, from the region of Galatia, and a man who at this point was quite young in his life, but as we know, he would become one of Paul's most trusted, if not his most trusted, side partner, his protege, his, as he calls him at some point, his son in the ministry. None of Paul's younger companions would ever fully capture his vision or reflect his life or his spirit as this man would, as we find out even later on in the letters to Timothy. So here he is, now a strong addition, like John Mark, a young man added to the team, a strong addition because a man who was known of, uh, as having high character, high reputation, plus he was half Greek, raised in Greek society and Greek ways, he would have been like uh, Silas before him, sympathetic to the cause of the Gentiles already. And Paul takes them and has them circumcised, not because he wants to impose on him some legalistic standard, but because he knows that as, these, as they're going out and preaching these, if you will, liberties from the law, that that kind of message of liberty is best delivered by people who are not taking advantage of the liberties. And so he understands the importance of having Timothy circumcised in order to avoid any uh, appearance, at least, of impropriety there. And so these are the three key missionaries to the Thessalonian church. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, given right to us here at the end of Acts 15, the beginning of Acts 16. And once we have those people in place, you can kind of just go on from there and see the basic background of the letter for the church at Thessalonica. They, they come and they begin to preach this message. They deliver the message to the churches of Galatia along the southern border, as I said, of modern-day Turkey. And then wanting to go up north from there into modern uh, Turkey, northern Turkey, into an area that was known as Bithynia. We read in verse 9 of Acts 16, when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia But the Spirit of Jesus, that is the Holy Spirit, did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia would have been what we would think of as modern northern Greece today. And so here they were on the west coast of, of Turkey, and the Spirit of Jesus appears to Paul and beckons him, calls him, tells him that he has to go further west into these uncharted territories across the Aegean Sea into Macedonia. And this was the cradle of Greek culture. If you know anything about Greek culture, this is where Philip and his son Alexander the Great came out of, the Macedonian area, the first uh, place, if you will, the, 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 where, where Greek culture began. And so, in verse 16, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. Now you just stop right there, because I want you to take note of the strategy of the Apostle Paul in missions here. Here he was going on where the Lord had led him, where doors had been closed, but going to those places where the Lord was directing him, but passing by Samothrace and and places like Neapolis, but spending time or landing in a place like Philippi. Because Luke says what? It was a leading city of the district. It was a leading city. It wasn't that these other places didn't need the gospel, it wasn't that it would have been a complete waste of time, it wasn't that the the Lord didn't love those people, but Paul, as a, we might say a foreign missionary, understood he had limited time, he had limited resources for where he could invest those. And so in his efforts to make the maximum impact, he targeted important metropolitan areas in the regions where he uh, traveled. He understood the importance of going to these leading cities, these capital cities, these influential and accessible cities. He wanted to spend his time in those kinds of places, establishing churches, building up churches, training up men, with the confidence that once those churches were established, the gospel would spread and expand into all the surrounding regions. Now I highlight that because that's exactly what Thessalonica is, as we'll see a little bit later on. And that's exactly what Paul praises God for doing among them, how the gospel sounded forth from them, not only into all of Macedonia, but even down into Achaia. In other words, it was a successful strategy on the part of the apostle Paul so that the, the, the model of ministry there that Paul set forth allowed the gospel to penetrate all of those surrounding regions because of the strategic influence of these cities. Philippi, where he first started, was a large city. It was on the Via Ignatia, the main highway going east to west across the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea there. It would have allowed for easy access to the city, Easy dissemination of the gospel from where Paul planted it, and he planted the churches there, and easy evangelization of all those surrounding regions. And so Paul stops there, he preaches in Philippi, and Luke tells us that uh, he does what he normally did. He, He lands there and he goes, we're told, down to the river, because Paul understood that this would have been a place of prayer. For the Jews on the Sabbath. In other words, he didn't go to the most hardened elements. He didn't go to the most distracted elements. He didn't make his his hay in the busy marketplace. Where people would have been conducting their business. He went to the place where folks would have been most open. Most ready. And most willing to discuss the issues of the gospel. This was another key part of his strategy. He spent his time where it would have been most fruitful for the sake of the ministry. And so, just like in other places, when he entered a city, we're told he would go to a synagogue, he would go to a place of prayer, he would go where people would naturally gather to discuss, we might say, religious matters, maybe even philosophical matters. But he would go to those places because people would be in a frame of mind to listen, to talk, to dialogue. And he began his preaching there. And then he would just see what happened. He would preach there and he would just see what opportunities opened up. And sometimes opportunities opened up for him to go into the agora, to go into the marketplace, to go even into the the city halls and the city places and to preach the gospel. But here, just like everywhere else, Paul went to where he found a ready audience. And he did that and he went down to the river and he met a woman named Lydia A woman who was uh, influential, an owner of a business and preached the gospel to her. She came to know Christ and eventually her whole household. And you can see the story there in verse uh, verse 16. Paul kept returning to the place of prayer down by the river until one day he cast a demon out of a slave girl. A, A girl who was, we're told, had a spirit of divination. She was a fortune teller of sorts. And Paul cast out this demon and her owners of this slave girl used to make money off of her and so they got upset that their source of revenue was taken away from them. They get angry, they go and seize Paul and Silas, they strip them and beat them with rods and you see down in verse 23, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. So here are Paul and Silas, we don't really know About Timothy, he apparently wasn't rounded up in this group, but Paul and Silas are thrown into the prison. And what do they do? Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So here the Lord shows up on there in this praise session after being beaten with rods and, and stripped in the middle of the city. Rather than moaning and groaning over their misfortune, they go down and they praise God. And the Lord shows up mightily, opens the prison's doors, and the guard comes in thinking all the prisoners had escaped, thinking he would have to take his own life because it would be taken from him if he had let all these prisoners go. But as it happens, none of them had left. Paul had taken up the leadership, encouraged them, no doubt, all to stay. And the jailer falls down at Paul's feet and asks, What must I do to be saved? So here you have another household. You have Lydia. Her whole household believes. The jailer comes to know Christ. We're told that he takes Paul back to his household that night and is immediately baptized that night. And then they take a meal together that night. And his whole household believes. And they're all rejoicing. The whole household is rejoicing over what the Lord is doing until the next morning when it was day, verse 35, and the magistrates magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported the words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. That's a smart guy. Paul's a smart guy. He, He knows what he's doing here. He knows that it was illegal for them to punish a Roman citizen without cause or at least without a fair trial. They hadn't been condemned. They were uncondemned at this point. And yet Paul doesn't make that appeal the night before. He doesn't appeal to that then, but no doubt somewhere in the night, it occurred to him that he had a certain leverage now. He understood that he could use this, plead his rights, as a way of, you might say, lifting the cloud that might naturally have remained over the church. This wasn't about Paul, and it wasn't about his own personal uh, inconvenience, or certainly wasn't about his own personal shame, but he understood that if they had shuffled these guys out quietly, the trouble might have returned and might have fallen on the church. And so, rather than letting that happen to this newfound church at his birth, he uses his legal right to try to give the church as much protection as they could under the local government. And these guys, realizing what they had done, they would have been afraid to have at least anytime soon come down hard on Paul or on what they knew to be his friends. And so they come, and they apologize, and they plead with Paul to go quietly, which he does, we're told, when they had visited with the uh, other believers as they went out, verse 40, from prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and then departed. Paul understood there was a time and a place where peace demanded that you move on. That he understood that he would have just caused more and more trouble had he stayed. So he, he saw the hand of the Lord and he moves on. Luke tells us he left the city and then in Acts 17, verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Apparently there wasn't in the previous cities, but there was one here. And Paul went in, listen to this, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And so here again, you see the same pattern. He he leaves Philippi, he travels west along the Via Ignatia, passing by these less significant cities of Amphipolis and Apollonia until he arrives at Thessalonica, which was a massive city. In fact, it's still to this day, it's the second largest city in Greece. It was probably between two and 300,000. It's probably 400,000 today. But it's a large city about 100 miles from Philippi. So you're talking about a long journey, maybe four or five days of traveling, walking... Uh, apparently not stopping except to rest through the night until they reached Macedonia's most important city. That's the way it was known, at least at that point. Some people called it the, the mother of Macedonia, the key city in Macedonia. And a large part of that was simply because of its location. It was located on three rivers that all converged coming out of the mainland up north all converged on what was basically a natural port or a natural harbor so that all of that section of Europe would have passed through Thessalonica if they wanted to ship their goods out into the Mediterranean. Or on the other hand, those who would be traveling east and west along the Via Ignatia would have passed through because that was the main highway of the day. And so it all resulted in this city being so strategic in its location for so many reasons. So what does Paul do? He identifies this key city again, this main city again. And gets busy with preaching the gospel. And he found a synagogue. synagogue, And he did what he always did. This was his custom. He went into a city. As I said. He didn't go to the most hardened elements. He didn't go to the most distracted elements. He didn't waste his time in those places that people wouldn't have been listening. He went to a synagogue. Where people were ready to discuss the scriptures. And he found here fruitful time. He found here time where he could reason together with Those who were there from the Scriptures about Christ. That's what verse 2 says there. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He explained and proved that it was necessary for Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This was Paul's message. It wasn't emotionalism. He didn't go in there and put on some gig and some show and stir people to tears and weeping and and all these things. What did he do? He reasoned with them. He reasoned with them. And for whatever reason, that has proven to be an offense to people through the years. You have people all the time, even to our own day, they don't want to sit and listen to a reasoned message from the Scripture about anything. Much less about the person of Christ. But this is exactly what he did. He reasoned with them. He explained to them. He gave them proofs from the scripture about what? About the fact that, first of all, Christ must suffer. And second of all, that he must rise from the dead. And so, having those biblical proofs, having those scriptural proofs of prophecy and fulfillment, he leads them to the proper conclusion this is the Christ. This was a key, of course, to all early preaching. In fact, as we get into the book of Thessalonians, it's one of Paul's earliest books, and what we're going to find is this is a key part of his message. He'll bring it up again and again. The suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead, pointing to the fact that He was the Messiah. These were not only uh, proofs of His Messiahship, they were not only key components of his message, and not only pointed to, at least in the explanation part, it pointed to the sin that demanded that kind of suffering, not Christ's sin, but our sin. The fact that we were the ones who deserved that kind of punishment, the fact that we were the ones who ought to be on the cross because of our rebellion, because of our unrighteousness, because of our failures before God. And yet Christ came and He had to suffer. It was necessary for Christ to suffer. This is what Jesus even told His disciples. You remember? The day of His resurrection, we read in Luke 24, verse 26, that He found some of His disciples walking on the road, going to a city, Emmaus. And He begins to talk to them, about himself, even though they didn't recognize him, they were, if you will, shielded from that. But they're talking to him as if he was a stranger, and then he tells them, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scripture all the things concerning himself. Even Peter and the opening chapter of the book of Acts, when the church was meeting in the temple in Jerusalem, he stood up before the Jews and said, What God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that, this, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. This was key. This was vital in the early church's preaching, the proofs of who Christ was by virtue of the Scripture. Regarding his suffering and his resurrection. And so here's Paul. He goes into these places. He preaches the prophesied suffering and death and resurrection of Christ. That's what he did. It provided a basis for the gospel, provided a basis for explanation about sin. It also provided a tremendous basis for understanding sanctification. Because Paul's able to appeal to this to the Thessalonians. This was his message to them, and he's able to appeal to it later on. You are suffering, he says. As a church, you're suffering. As Christians, you're suffering. But you're not going through anything that is any different than what the Lord Jesus went through. You're just simply joining together with Him in that. In fact, Paul will tell them later on that from the very beginning, I told you, it's necessary for us to suffer, just as our Savior did. Now Luke tells us in verse 4, some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now again, Paul and Silas, where's Timothy in this? We don't know. Perhaps he was left back with the Philippian church to ground them, to, to raise up leaders, to prepare them for is going to come because Paul had to leave so suddenly uh, out of that city. Timothy, however, would apparently rejoin them. He's mentioned in the next section talking about uh, Berea. But he's not here, it seems, at this point. Although later, we'll find out, Timothy is actually sent to Thessalonica. Uh, once he gets back with Paul, they're, they're ministering in Berea. And then they, the Jews from Thessalonica... Uh, send trouble down there and they have to flee away to Athens and eventually to Corinth. At that point, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. So that's how he becomes a part of this missionary uh, triumvirate. But anyway, we're here and Paul's preaching stirs up this trouble and some Jews are persuaded, some Greeks as well, some devout Greeks, some who no doubt had joined together with the Jews in worshiping God and then even some wealthy ladies, some leading women in the city. And all of this, Luke says in verse 5, caused the Jews to be jealous and taking some wicked men from among the rabble. I mean, nothing changes, right? We see these mobs and these protests and all these groups and then, you know, people go investigate it to find out who these people are and what do they find so many times? This. Just people who are troublemakers, sitting around with nothing better to do. Wicked people from among the rabble, just looking for some sort of excitement. They gather these guys around, they form a mob, they set the city in an uproar. They go around, they kind of build their movement, who knows how long. And then eventually, we're told, they attack the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd, And when they could not find them, that is, they couldn't find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down. The men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I mean, I, I love that. They've turned the world upside down. These guys had a reputation. These guys were known for something. They were known for something. They were known not for being trendy or not for being hip. That's not their reputation. What they were known for is by, but for turning the world or turning their system on its head. Their message had penetrated. It had, it had an impact. It had caused chaos and confusion in a good way in people's lives. It's just incredible. You can imagine a church and a group of people after just such a short period of time having such an effect on everything around them that people would actually say that they had turned the world upside down. I mean, some people go through their whole life and and folks don't even know they exist. I mean, some people go through their whole life. Some Christians go through their whole life and people around them don't even know they're a Christian. Or they barely even notice that they're a Christian. They have no effect on anyone. Much less saying that you turned everything on its head. Everything upside down. But that's what Paul... I mean, that's what Luke says about these guys. This was the report. This was the reputation of Paul and of Silas that that came with them down from Philippi and then they sort of attached that to what they were seeing happening there in Thessalonica. Just an influential... Group of people. Apparently they had heard, no doubt, about the reputation. It wasn't just Thessalonica. They were expanding this all the way out to Philippi. News had traveled along the road. Word had come. These people had made a splash, if you will, that began in Philippi. And now its ripple effects were rocking the boat, as it were, in Thessalonica. And here they were proclaiming their message and creating at least... These guys were wanting to give the impression of creating all kinds of, of chaos. Paul's always finding trouble, always finding himself in the midst of riots, always happening wherever he went. And it's what's happening here. And so it ends, once again, in a hasty end to the ministry. The Jews, we're told, took these wicked men, these men of low character, these guys who were good for nothing, we might say, sitting around the marketplace, lazy looking for some trouble. They take these troublemakers, they create this chaos, and then they bring and they drag Jason and some of these other Christians before the city leadership and falsely accuse them of acting against the government, against the decrees of Caesar. And basically they charge them with revolutionary intent. And Jason in particular as the one who is sheltering revolutionaries. And more specifically, they're charged with treason. They're acting, they say, contrary to the decrees of Caesar and saying that there's another king, one Jesus, they say. Well, verse 8 tells us the people and the city authorities, they were disturbed. They were obviously upset when they heard these things. And... When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now this is dangerous stuff. These guys understood what they're dealing with. The city authorities understood what they're dealing with. Because Thessalonica, not only was it a big city, not only was it a strategic city, but it had been given a a special status, a free city and a Roman colony. So that those people who were born in Thessalonica were given All the privileges of Roman citizenship, all the protection of Roman citizenship. And they were even given the ability to not be governed by Rome, by a bunch of displaced senators who had no local interest. They were given the ability to make their own decisions for their own city. And they didn't want to lose that. So the last thing they wanted is to be accused of harboring or sheltering revolutionaries. They understood these were serious charges. But on the other hand, they seem to be more seasoned, at least more reasoned than the guys in Philippi because they didn't snatch them up and beat them and throw them in prison. In fact, they were much less panicky. They figured out a way to guard themselves against this accusation of harboring uh, uh, treasonous people and at the same time not unjustly condemn people without a trial and at the same time probably keep their agitators happy Because what they did is they extracted a bond from Jason and from the other brothers. Basically a financial guarantee that these kinds of uproars, these kinds of riots won't happen again in the city. And all of this, in effect, made it so that if Paul and Silas continued their work, it would have directly harmed their fellow believers. They understood that. They had sort of been boxed in, because whatever they did now was going to cause serious financial loss to the Christians, to the church. And so, once again, Paul makes a strategic decision in his missionary endeavors, not to carry out his work where it would have brought unnecessary suffering to local Christians. And they agree that it was expedient for them to leave at once. And so they go, once again, down the road, 40 miles to Berea. Now, all of that forced departure sets the scene for the book of Thessalonica, Thessalonians, I should say. Because Paul, although it's not spoken about in Acts, he felt the sting of having to leave this church so prematurely. Right in the middle of this upheaval. Right in the middle of this time. And apparently there was no one left behind. Like there might have been back in Philippi where perhaps Timothy was left behind. There was no one left behind to give him any idea of how the church was doing. And so he is going on his way and he's carrying on his ministry. But while he's doing it, he is burdened. He is overwhelmed with with anxiety and grief over what's happening for uh, with the church there. We don't know exactly how long Paul was there in Thessalonica. It wasn't long. Luke only mentions three Sabbath days. It was probably longer than that, maybe two or three months. It had to be at least some period of time because uh, Luke tells us that Paul was uh, traveling there. I'm sorry, not Luke. Paul tells us that Paul... Paul tells us that he, in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, actually labored with his own hands. So he had to be there long enough to set up a kind of a tent-making business, whether it was literally making tents or something else. He was there long enough to find gainful employment. But not only that, we find out from Philippians chapter 4, he tells the Philippians, or he thanks the Philippians, because he says, on two occasions, you sent gifts to Thessalonica while I was there to help me with my work. And so it's kind of hard to imagine that all of that would happen over the course of three Sabbath days, two weeks or three weeks at the most. So probably he went in, he reasoned with the Jews on the Sabbath, people's hearts began to turn, the Jews saw what was happening, they became jealous, and then they took time to hatch their plot, to work out their plot And to carry it forward before eventually Paul had to be expelled from the city. As we said, maybe two or three months. But nevertheless, it was a short period of time. And Paul was ripped away from this church that had become so beloved to him. Forced to head down the road to Berea. Of course, jealous and bitter Jews followed him there from Thessalonica. Stirred up more trouble and caused... Paul, once again, to have to be shuffled out of town over secrecy of night, taken far, far away, all the way down to Athens, where he preached the gospel for a while with very little fruit until eventually he moved on to Corinth. But if you'll turn with me now back over to Thessalonians, and particularly in chapter 3, you'll see how all of this now comes together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, as Paul tells them exactly why he writes this letter. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith That Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported uh, that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted. uh, We've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if we are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel? For your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Here you can just hear the heart of this pastor coming out, how he has been grieved, being ripped away from these people, not able to know what's going on with them, not able to uh, to, to have any report because there's no one to give him a report. And so he gets down to Athens after being chased out of Berea and he makes the decision immediately to dispatch Timothy back to Thessalonica. You say, well, I mean, isn't that going to cause trouble? Well, no, Timothy apparently wasn't there to begin with, so he wouldn't have been recognized as a troublemaker. So he's able to go in uh, in a more safe fashion. He's able to be with the church, exhort the church, establish the church, build up the church... And then eventually, Paul moves to Corinth, and Timothy rejoins him there. We're told in Acts chapter 15, he rejoins him there with gifts coming from the Philippian brothers, the Macedonian brothers, uh, there in Corinth. Now all that kind of takes us, if you will, to the other side of this, from the concerned missionaries, very briefly over to the church in conflict. Because as we already saw, this is what Paul is doing. He's worried about this church. He's concerned about this church because he knows the affliction that they're in. He told them from the very beginning, this was going to be a part of their lot. This was going to be a part of of their walk. If they were going to be the kind of church that God wanted them to be, if they were going to be the kind of church that turned the world upside down, if they were going to be the kind of church that had an impact on the world around them. And as we will see, Thessalonian, the Thessalonican church had a tremendous impact, a tremendous missionary and evangelistic impact. If they're going to be that kind of church, then one of the key ingredients that they had to have was an understanding of affliction, an understanding of suffering, an appreciation, as Paul says there at the end of chapter 2 of the fact that they would be under assault by the evil one, or as he says in chapter 3, in verse 5, that they would be tempted by the tempter, that they would be opposed by the evil one because of the penetration that they were making into his kingdom of darkness. And all that helps to explain why Paul greets them as he does all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 1 with this simple greeting to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. And this is a, no doubt where Paul had to reach. This is the point where he had to go. This is the point where every leader has to go in his mind. Where every elder, every pastor has to go in his mind. That no matter how long or how short you are with a church, ministering to a church, no matter what the extent of your ministry is, ultimately this church is a church who is in God. They're in God. I mean, they're not in your hands. They're not ultimately up. It's not only ultimately up to you what happens with this church. Paul was forced To this conclusion. He doesn't elaborate on it necessarily here. But as we'll see. As he moves through this book. He's going to elaborate on the fact. That he had to trust God with the church. As he was experiencing his persecution. As he's experiencing all of his affliction. As he was having his hands tied behind his back figuratively in ministry. As he was under assault in his motives and his integrity as he was chased out of town all these other things he had to come to this realization that no doubt grew in time as it always does with every maturing ministry every maturing pastor that the church is not his church the church is not any man's church the church is the church in God and if it's going to be cared for it's going to be cared for by him And if it's going to be taken care of, it's going to be taken care of by Him. This is why the whole first chapter of Thessalonians is a prayer. this, This reality of going through the pain and going through the separation and going through the helplessness, this reality had one grand effect in the apostle's life. It deepened his prayer life. It gave him a deeper sense than he ever had that he had to depend on God for the sake of this church because he couldn't be there together with them. That's a great lesson to learn whether you're there or whether you're absent, right? To understand that the church is his. To understand that if anything's going to happen, it's going to happen through him. Well, we're certainly going to learn that as we go through this book, as we look at this church, as we think about what affliction and what suffering. What trials and tribulations look like in the church. The Lord's going to use it to prepare us not only for that suffering, but even for the kind of reaction, the kind of prayers that we ought to have for the church of God. It's going to be a great time. I hope that uh, the Lord will prompt your heart to be in prayer for us as we go through this letter, asking the Lord. Not only to teach us these same kind of lessons, but to mold us into this same kind of a church. The same kind of love for one another. The same kind of readiness to suffer. The same kind of outreach that the Thessalonian church had. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with, with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for our time together today. Thankful to just understand the testimony of this church To be challenged by it. To look around at ourselves. To weigh ourselves and to ask ourselves, have we done anything to turn anyone's life upside down? To that extent, Lord, we pray for your grace, for your mercy on on us, that you would have your way with Faith Community Church. Prepare us through these studies through these letters, for whatever affliction may come, that we might have a voice, a a word of proclamation, the necessity of our Savior's suffering and death and resurrection, that we might be prepared to reason, to preach and to explain the gospel with all that we come in contact with. Lord, we need that desperately and we pray that You would use these coming weeks, to that end. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.